The Hearing. Twill Takeover. Transforming women's leadership in the law. I have an extremely diverse team here at Kraft Heinz, and I'm very proud of that. And I always stress the importance of, you know, I'm a certain type of thinker with a certain type of background as a certain type of person, and I cannot give the best advice to my clients. I cannot play the chess game that is often the projects that we're working on unless I surround myself with people who are very different from who I am. Hello, and welcome to the fifth and final episode of the Twill Takeover of The Hearing. I am your host, Janelle Wrigley, for this special series that's focusing on women's leadership in the legal industry. Our guest today is a star of the legal profession. She's a legal leader of a company that I can almost guarantee that each of you listening has come across in one way or another, maybe in your kitchen, maybe at a restaurant or at the grocery store. Um, no matter where in the world that you are. And that's because today I'm speaking with Rashida Lalonde, and she is the Global General Counsel of the Kraft Heinz Company. Uh, Rashida, I had such a great time talking to her, and she is one of those people who is, she's so accomplished, and so she's very much an inspiration, and she's a role model to others. Uh, But she also, she just seems superhuman because she makes it all look so easy, uh, even though, of course, it's it's really not. Um, And in the course of chatting with her, she offered, I thought, some really insightful advice for lawyers. Um, If you know, if you're somebody who's really looking to stand out at your firm, somebody who's ambitious and thinking about making partner. Um, She talked a lot about the qualities and the skills uh, that you can bring to the table to to make you a star at your place of work. Um, So it's easy to see why Rashida has been such a valued mentor to others. uh, And I hope that you're able to pick up some advice from her as well. So go make yourself a cup of tea or or head outside for a walk as you're listening in these uh, last days of summer. And I hope you enjoy the conversation with Rashida as much as I did. The Hearing Twill Takeover. Hello, Rashida. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I know you're very busy, so we appreciate uh, the time that you're taking out to talk with me today about all things women's leadership and also just to learn from you about your career journey as, as you've had some amazing accomplishments along the way. So looking forward to talking about that and finding out just a little bit more about you as a person as well. Just to kick things off with a little bit about you and and your life before you became a lawyer, I understand that you grew up in Jamaica, Queens, New York City. For those of our listeners who are from, you know, outside the U.S. and maybe don't know as much about it, can you tell us a little bit about about Jamaica, a little bit about your upbringing there? Sure. So yes, I, I grew up in a small part of Jamaica called St. Albans, which is in Queens, New York. For the people who are not from New York, I like to compare it to Spider-Man's neighborhood in all of the Spider-Man movies. So it was a black working class neighborhood in Queens. You know, it was a lot of fun growing up. You know, I, my summers were filled with you know, fire stations getting opened and playing games on the pavement and double dutch and never being far enough away that my mother couldn't, you know, stick her head out the window and call me home at any particular time. You were never allowed off of the block, but, and it, you know, it was, it's a great place to grow up. I went to Catholic school for a couple of years in the neighborhood. And then I, 
got bussed out to some private schools a little bit further away and ultimately Lawrence Woodmere Academy in Long Island, which is where I, I graduated from. And, you know, I, it's something that I look back on finally. I still have some cousins and aunts and uncles that live there, so we still visit pretty regularly. Ultimately, you went to Harvard for your undergrad and then to Columbia for law school. So I wanted to ask, you know, what drew you to the law as a career? If you had role models that, that inspired you to go in that direction or if it was something you kind of came up with on your own? I wouldn't say I came up with it on my own, you know, as when you're a fairly argumentative young lady who loves to read, you hear more than anything else about how maybe the law is something that you should think of and look forward to. I also had the pleasure of there were lots of, you know, fun TV shows growing up where lawyers got to wear cool outfits and walk into court and, you know, demand justice for their clients in whatever form. And so it always seems very interesting to me. I didn't really know much about other professions besides medicine and the law and kind of, you know, other professions that people had in my neighborhood. And so for me, I knew that being a doctor wasn't really an option. So I kind of steered very quickly towards the law. I do think it did fit my personality. I, you know, I love to read. I was always ahead in a book. On a good day, I read you know, multiple books a day and a bad day, I read one and I could never get enough. And so having that experience of, you know, going through tomes and tomes of literature is a great way to prepare for law school. And, you know, ultimately I, I, I always had a picture of lawyers being the types, you know, that, that judges, you know, going into courtrooms, but when given the opportunity to practice and to study at Columbia, you know, really corporate law was something that attracted me more than litigation, which was a bit of a surprise because I didn't know anything about corporate law before then, but you know, doing contracts, learning about companies, thinking about their financial statements and their business and the ways that you can help them expand and grow and you know manage their risk. You know, that is where I felt myself drawn from very early on. And you ultimately became a partner at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, specializing, I believe, in, in MA. Is there anything that drew you in particular to to mergers and acquisitions work as you sort of embarked on your legal career? I think, you know, of all those books that I used to read all of the time, a quite significant percentage of them were science fiction. And, you know, anything with stars and dragons and, you know, different worlds and different universes is something that I always loved. And the thing that attracted me with M&A in particular is that when you learn about a company and its business and you talk to leaders, people who engage in strategy, CEOs, about how they see their businesses in the future. Like that is M&A. At the end of the day, you know, you're trying to, to buy or to sell a business because you're looking to 5, 10, 20, 30 years into the future and you're thinking about what that business might look like, what it might need, the ways that you can advance it, how it's going to change. And so it's that forward-looking element of M&A that first attracted me. In addition to that, I think one of the really cool things about being an M&A lawyer is, you know, you obviously have to really understand M&A law in particular. But in addition to that, when you're doing an M&A transaction, you know, you are tasked with being the person that really understands the business best on the te deal team. And then you work with IP people and labor and employment and litigators and tax and capital markets and, you know, lots of different specialists and experts. And as the M&A lawyer, usually you're kind of the, the center 
of the the wheel, if you will, you know, managing, working with those different levels of experts, getting their advice and opinions and figuring out a way to manage it within the view of, you know, the business ultimately. And so the combination of, you know, the future looking interactions with M&A, as well as the ability to work with so many different specialists and to really be you know, back in law school again, in terms of getting to know enough about a particular area to be dangerous, (laughs) to be able to spot issues, to be able to help come up with solutions. And at the same time, to really respect the expertise and experience and judgment of the people that you're working with. I've never heard anybody kind of draw that line between science fiction or even fiction and and practicing law and and, and what drew you to the M&A space. I love that because it, it emphasizes so much the creativity that's really needed when you're working as a lawyer at those high levels on those big deals, which is sometimes people from the outside may not realize how much creativity and forward-looking futurism is is needed to be a really excellent lawyer as as you are. So that was a really interesting answer to give and and what inspired you to to join that that area of practice. I wanted to ask, you know, you think back, you were, I think, were you at Gibson Dunn for about almost 20 years, all all total? I was. You know, I started off as a first-year associate at Chad Borden Park, which is now Norton Rose. The M&A group moved over to Gibson, and I went with them. And so I practiced, you know, most of my career at Gibson Dunn, where I became partner and then had, you know, my own practice, M&A practice, representing primarily, like, technology, consumer products, and retail companies in buying and selling businesses around the world. Are there any kind of highlights that jump, jump out to you from your time at the firm, cases that you worked on or or moments that were particular highs while you were there? Well, one particular high, it was a particular high and a particular low at the same time. I worked with a private equity sponsor who was looking to buy a portion of a global business that had gone into bankruptcy. And it was a very large global business. They wanted to buy a, a piece of it. And, you know, what made it the high, you know, I spent a year working on this transaction. And the thing about bankruptcy that's really interesting is fundamentally different than a lot of other laws, like bankruptcy is about equity. And when you look and you think about fairness, you come to appreciate that what different cultures, different countries, different people think of as fair is it, it varies widely country to country. And so when you're looking at a global business and thinking about, okay, I want to buy a global business, you know, again, one country thinks that, you know, one outcome is fair. And then another country thinks that a completely opposite outcome is fair. And, you know, you may have to then get it approved by a judge or a trustee um, and explain to them how you're working within their general concept culture and principles in order to get to the result. I worked on it for, you know, close to a year. And so it was just really fascinating, you know, from a learning perspective, because you not only have to learn about the law, you really have to learn about the culture of the places that you're doing business in order to be effective. Now, it was a low because my client ultimately did not win the auction, which is what happens with assets assets in bankruptcy. So that was disappointing. But in terms of what I learned during that, you know, that's the beauty of the law. It's the beauty of being a lawyer is that no one can ever take what you've learned away from you. And you can always use it for the next transaction, for the next experience that you have. And I really do think that that was, you know, one of the best learning experiences that I had. Yeah. And again, I would think that now that you're managing this huge global legal organization, that again, those those experiences with understanding different 
cultures and law and, and the way that different lawyers operate in different legal jurisdictions, again, probably comes to help you, I would imagine, in, in your current day job. But we'll get there. I keep getting ahead of myself a little bit. I wanted to ask just, you know, I'm curious what it was like when you found out you were making partner at Gibson Dunn. Was, was there was it one moment or did you know it was coming and, and what did you do to celebrate? You know, I had good indications. I was fortunate. I was up for partner after, you know, at the end of my seventh year. So at the earliest opportunity, I had good indications. You know, I, I worked on really interesting deals. I, you know, had mentors and sponsors who were very open about how they thought that I was performing. That being said, you know, it's it's never a done deal until it's a done deal. And, you know, when you're in that moment, you don't feel certain until you get that phone call saying it's done. And so I will say, you know, I felt like it wasn't certain. All, I, my, my, my husband would challenge me on that <laughs> because we had scheduled our wedding for like the week after the, the vote was to occur. And so, I, you know, I, I, I found out on a Thursday that I made partner. A lot of people came to my office. We had champagne. I, you know, left that night. We flew to the island where we were getting married the next morning. We got married a week later and went on our honeymoon. Wow. That all worked out. <laughs> you had a lot to celebrate in a very short time span. <laughs> I, I I did. I did. And and the good news is if it hadn't worked out, I still would have had a lot to celebrate. Exactly. That's kind of the yeah. way that I looked at it. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I wanted to ask you because you know retaining talented lawyers can be a challenge for for all law firms and for big law firms maybe in particular. And the data shows that the women and people of color tend to to leave big big law disproportionately sort of before reaching that point of kind of being up up for partner. Of course, you navigated that path successfully due to your talents as a lawyer and and as a leader. But I wanted to ask you if if there's anything else that you would credit, you know, with having successfully navigated that that path to achieving partnership. I would say having good mentors and being a good mentor, because it's it's those ties in both directions that really draw you into the law firm. You know, from a mentor perspective, it's, you know, having people who would talk to me about how I was doing, who would talk to me about, you know, the ways that I could prove that would calm me down when I would get to points where I was like, well, I haven't gotten any constructive feedback, you know, that must be a bad thing. And they're like, no, it means you're doing well, relax. It means, you know, having people who, you know, talk to me about, you know, opportunities or challenges that they faced and how I might overcome them. And it also meant that I, you know, I paid it forward when I had people that were coming behind me to mentor in a similar way, you know, and then once you, you're mentoring people, like that level of responsibility that you take on over, you know, over how well they're doing and their success is something that, you know, I think also speaks to and, and, and engenders longevity with the people that are being mentored and are doing the mentoring. Is that something that you sought out or did they form kind of naturally from, from the work that you were doing and, and the matters that you were working on? I think the best mentoring relationships form naturally. You know, you, you sometimes have to create environments where you force mentoring because there are people that will just fall through the cracks and or won't get the relationships naturally. And, and I have the people that I mentored, frankly, were people that were assigned to me, but we developed very strong relationships. Whereas for my end, I think that the mentors that I came across tended to be the mentors that came naturally from the work. 
in law firms in particular, but not only in law firms, also in companies, you know, people who are strong workers, who are hardworking, who are thoughtful, who are creative, who, you know, go the extra mile, who think proactively about not only what they're doing in front of me, but what's going to come next, what's going to be asked of them next, you know, anticipate what the next things are going to happen. And also who can deal with, you know, the difficult personalities, you know, not everybody that you're going to work with is, you know, super charming and wonderful and the nicest person on the planet. But the thing about sometimes when you come across those difficult personalities and still doing great work for them, it's not like those people don't know that they're difficult. They know that they're difficult. And so there is an unwritten thing that's people who are capable of doing all of those things are like gold, right? They're not every person. They have a tremendous amount of value. You don't want to lose them. And so people will bend over backwards to make sure that the people who are gold, you know, get the support and the maintenance that they need. Although you did eventually move on from Gibson Dunn's. In 2018, you moved to Kraft Heinz Company to join them as general counsel. What was behind that, that change in your career? I went to college and I was, you know, I was relatively young given my birthday. And then I went straight to law school. And so there was no time in between. So by the time I was working for Gibson Dunn, you know, I'd really had two jobs. I had been a lifeguard and then I'd worked at a law firm. And, you know, I was very happy in my job. I was very happy working for the firm and representing the clients that I had. I had strong relationships, you know, and at the same time, I was thinking to myself, you know, Kraft Heinz reached out to me and I, you know, initially was like, no, I'm, I'm happy where I am. But at the same time, you know, I started thinking, okay, well, what if I, if I retire only having ever worked at a law firm or as a lifeguard? So I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll take these calls. I'll take this call from Kraft Heinz. You know, if worse comes to worse, it'll be 15 minutes of my life. It's a no big deal. But then I started talking to them about the, the role of general counsel and in particular what they were looking for. And I thought it was really interesting. I mean, you know, the the global nature, you know, consumer products, which is very M&A. You know, I grew up with the Jetsons. So it's what are consumer products going to look like in 2030? How are consumers going to be eating and thinking about food? And what are going to be the trends? Like, that's exciting. The global nature of the company, we, you know, we operate in over 160 countries. You know, I think the beauty of consumer products companies is, you know, the the main you know, assets that are really important at the end of the day are IP and people. And, you know, I think those are the, the, those are the types of deals that I found most exciting when I was working for Gibson and for my clients. You know, at the wrong company, sometimes lawyers can be treated as though they're really, you know, they're somebody that you pick up the phone and you call when you have a problem and they're always there to say no. That wasn't necessarily an environment that I wanted to work in. And I don't think that that's the environment that I came to. You know, it was much more of a all doors are open to you. You're welcome to, you know, to find out whatever information that you want or need. We, you know, we want really a business person who has legal training who is thinking about how to solve the company's most difficult problems with a legal lens, but not only legal problems, which was something that was extremely important to me. And then, you know, at, during my time at Gibson Dunn, I had spent a lot of time on various committees, you know, the diversity committee, the associate committee, the professional development committee, the compensation committee. And, you know, as I talked to the company, it became clear that, you know, a lot of what you do as a general counsel really is also its leadership, its mentoring, it's it's helping to run the business, it's, you know, 
it's the type of things that you do on those committees outside of just the pure practice of law. And so for me personally, I had a, a good experience with kind of firm operations of the various committees that I was on that I came to see would translate well to the type of leadership roles that I would need in-house at the company. So, you know, all in all, I, I kind of said, well, maybe this is a chance that's worth taking. And, you know, I've never looked back. And how did you navigate, you know, that transition from, from being a partner to being a general counsel? Did you have any kind of strategy that you employed in those early months when you were getting your hands around the job? You know, I, I approached it with humility. It wasn't, you know, I didn't have a strategy so much as a knowledge that as much as I knew about the prior roles and law that I was practicing, I was coming into something new that I didn't know as well. And that I had to start off by learning and listening. So before I took the job, I, you know, met with any GC of a public company that would take a lunch. You know, I did a tremendous amount of research on the company and its brands and its strategies and its owners and its people. I came into the company and I just, you know, and I before I started, I met with the CEO and I said, he said, okay, I want to go to meet with you. I want to, you know, I want to meet with you on day 30 and have a plan. And I, and I said, with all due respect, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to spend the first 30 to 60 days listening. And I went around, you know, interviewing and taking meetings with any person within the company that would take the meeting, no matter how senior or how junior. I went around visiting factories and offices. And like I said, just really listening so that then I could form my own view of what the role should entail, what my most pressing needs were, and from there develop a strategy. That takes a lot of confidence to say, you know, no to that, this is what I need to do actually in the first 60 days is, is to have these listening sessions and understand more. That's amazing. So and it sounds like it's been very successful so far. I'm curious to ask too, just, you know, what, what your days look like as, as a general counsel of such a, such a significant and, and global company. Very different than they did as a, the law firm, actually. Um, so, I, you know, my days tend to be filled with meetings, usually 30 to an hour meetings, not particularly long meetings, but, you know, going from topic to topic to topic to topic, which is part of where the fun happens. There's not a day that goes by where somebody doesn't come to me and present me with an issue or something that happens that doesn't, you know, make me scratch my head and and go, you know, that well, that's a new one. And I'm going to have to really think about how to solve that problem, which is, you know, is which is challenging and, and, a, and a lot of fun, frankly. You know, we're we're currently in hybrid. So, you know, I generally schedule the days that I'm in the office are 100% meetings till the second that I come in until the second that I leave, which means that the days when I am working from home tend to be the days where I'm, you know, that's when I'm reading the proxy. That's when I'm, you know, commenting on the 10Q. That's when I'm revising some litigation statement or some, you know, an M&A agreement. Those tend to be the more quiet times. And, you know, I think the ways that it's different, you know, when I was a partner at, at Gibson, you know, my day was more client dependent, you know, the client's going to schedule something and you kind of have to move things around. You might have really long meetings for five hours, you know, sometimes 
you know, I remember one time I got into a meeting at 9 a.m. and it, you know, a telephone meeting at 9 a.m. and it finished at 9 p.m. So very different, you know, and I, but I would also tend to take clients to lunch, take clients to dinner, you know, go to events in the evening. So busy, but kind of different schedule. Whereas here, it tends to be, you know, the days are not quite as long, but they're dense. I think you said Kraft Heinz has operations in 100, how many countries was it? 160. 160. I think that's just about as many countries as there are. almost. Um, (laughs) How do you go about leading, you know, such a a diverse global organization in terms of, you know, the legal cultures, the perceptions of risk in in different jurisdictions? Do you have any lessons that you've brought to that or, or strategies that you use? There's two things that I think are the focus. One is both you have to come up with an understanding for your team and for the company of the places where, you know, there has to be a Kraft Heinz way of working because we are a U.S. public company, food company, subject to certain types of laws and regulations. And that is the beginning end of it from that perspective. And there are certain types of issues that there just can be no compromise because of the, you know, that the nature of the, the, the animal. On the other hand, you know, you have to, uh, you know, when you do work in that many different countries, you always try to bring as much of an understanding of the fact that there are different cultures, that there are different ways of perceiving, that there are different ways of interacting, and they can be extremely simple. Like, you know, can you use your left hand or not when shaking someone's hand? Or they can be very complicated and, you know, and okay, you know, the eyebrow raise is interpreted this way here as opposed to the way that you're used to doing it. So being cognizant and aware and flexible enough to manage the risk in those jurisdictions and at the same time with a very clear center, but that doesn't mean that there are, is any room to maneuver around these core principles that need to be applicable to our business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing the legal profession right now? I mean, given you've had you know, deep experience in a law firm environment, you're a legal leader and a business leader now, there's a lot of change going on. Just curious for your take on, on some of the challenges you see facing the profession. I think AI is a challenge facing the profession. I think it's an opportunity as well. And I think that at certain points, you know, you'll end up with situations where you're either, you know, a lawyer who uses AI or not, but most you know, are going to have to figure out a way and a method for using it. That being said, you know, it's going to, it presents a ton of challenges, you know, ownership, copyright, security, cyber, accuracy, challenges in terms of how to allocate work, you know, and how do you supervise and what types of work can be done by technology and what types of work cannot. So I think that's a tremendous place where I expect that it to be a pretty significant changes in the ways that both companies and law firms work going forward. Do you tend to kind of look internally for solutions to some of those problems or do you look to your law firm partners sort of take the lead in, in guiding you through that or, or how do you have these big change, technological changes and things that come up? Curious how you how you navigate that for the company. I think you have to do uh, a combination, you know, again, it's particularly when something that's new, it's always important to be humble. And so to recognize that you might have 
you know, notions, you might have experiences, but that doesn't make them right. And to, you know, spend some of the time in an information gathering phase. And that can be with, you know, outside councils, it can be with other general councils, it can be with head of IT for your business, you know, it can be deep diving internally to understand the ways that people might want to use technology. You have to do all of it. You have to listen and, and then you can come up with strategy. I mean, and, and, and it doesn't mean that by virtue of listening, you have to necessarily delay yourself significantly. You can listen, you know, understand and start to develop strategy that you can then execute on pretty quickly understanding that whatever you execute on is not is going to have to change you know i mean uh, you know it's not the what technology is um today is not going to be what it is going to be next week let alone next year let alone 10 years from now and so you if you approach it with the okay i'm going to i've heard enough to allow me to put something in place that's going to be 80% right recognizing that i need to be prepared and flexible to pivot and what are the processes that I'm going to put in place to make sure that as things change, I'm getting information about that change and able to execute on those changes. Turning to the focus of this particular series of the podcast, which is women's leadership in the legal profession, I wanted to ask some questions around what more the profession can be doing or we can be doing as individuals to advance women into leadership positions. and. I want to start with, you know, just a sense of some of the progress that has been made in recent years, you know, the data showing that, that, you know, there's been some slow progress towards having more women in leadership, but the gains have been pretty slow, I would say, overall. And for Black women and women of color in particular, progress has been even slower. So I wanted to ask, you know, in your career, what have you seen that, if anything, that that works in terms of developing and retaining talented women lawyers? And I know you mentioned earlier mentorship was was very important in your own career. Is there anything else you've seen that that you know more companies could be doing to to make more progress? I'm ultimately, you know, in a lot of ways, an optimist, and I feel like I have seen a lot of change, positive change over the course of my career. Is it as much positive change as I may have expected at the beginning of my career? Probably not. But you know, I'm going to take the wins that I can that I can take. I believe that when you turn around and you look and you see really talented people, I believe that it is important to invest in those people. And sometimes investing in those people can mean under taking a step back and maybe thinking through taking a longer view of their career, of the opportunity, of their ability to be overall successful might mean. And what I mean by that, and, and it's not just about children, but I mean, you know, over, if you look over the course of, you know, people's lives, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have four children, you know, I have, uh, you know, I made partner at a law firm during a time when it was, you know, extremely intense and uh, hours intensive and demanding. But my career is in a straight, straight trajectory. It's not just one, it's just not from point A to point B, you know, upward line. You know, there were places where it went, you know, slightly down and places where it went massively jumped. And, you know, that's how the overwhelming majority of, of um, careers are going to be. 
And some of those downs were around particular life events, you know, uh, a new baby or a third baby, which is like, you know, a whole nother planet of responsibility from the first baby. It doesn't feel like that when you have the first and then baby, what about the, the third one. And <laughs> exactly. And the, the fourth one just breaks you. But, um, <laughs> but understanding that there, you know, if you, t- if you, the people who, you know, who worked with me for long periods of time, who mentored me, who had had a more long-term and mm-hmm. holistic view of my life and my career and my, the things that I delivered for my clients and my stakeholders and my company, mm-hmm. If you did it that way, you can you're, you you can ride out that three weeks, right. that month, that where I'm not sleeping and you know my hair standing on end and you know my eyes are glossed over, because that's just a that's just a period, yeah. and it happens to plenty of other people. You know, sick parent, you know, health issues, like you know, and so when you look and make commitments around understanding what people are capable of and you develop that strong relationship with a view of who they can be and they are and they in turn make that commitment to you i think that careers companies firms are overall better for it and what i think has been a big shift that has allowed for there to be more women and more women of color in you know in partnership positions and senior positions at companies is an understanding that if you step back and understand, you know, some of the career places where you might have to be a little bit understanding, understanding that you're going to get, you know, more out of it in the long term, then that's better for everyone. You know, and the other thing is that, you know, I, I have that for me, one of the things that was always helpful for me is I try to assume good intentions with everyone to start. And I ask people to try to assume good intentions for me to start. You know, it might not play out that way over the course, but as a result, I think it means that I have always been attracted to, you know, firms and companies that really focus on, you know, results, you know, not not necessarily subjective, but objective. You know, it's very similar to school, you know, and it's clear, like, if I deliver these things, then we agree that that's what success looks like. Okay, well, then I'm going to go deliver these things. And where I think the rubber sometimes meets the road is when you say, okay, here are the four things, they're success, but then it's like, oh, but, you know, you know, but, you know, and then all of a sudden there becomes this subjective conversation. For me, I always focused on the places that said and meant it's about these objective matters. And then I could focus on what those objective matters were and then draw back to them when necessary. Now, if you're then, you know, people respond to you with subjective stuff, then it's not the objective place that you thought it was. (laughs) And maybe for me, that wouldn't be a good fit anymore. But, you know, that has made a, I I think also made an extremely important distinction for me in my career. That's really interesting. And that takes good management or lawyers are not always known for being the best sort of people managers, but exactly what you're talking about of defining what success looks like and then being held to that. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. As general counsel, are are you able to use the levers of influence with your outside law firms to to try and influence, you know, law firms to maybe be doing more on the diversity and inclusion front? Are there initiatives at Kraft Heinz or criteria that you kind of employ when you're looking at your outside counsel? I tend to use more soft skills and soft roles than more hard and fast. 
why? Because I have found in my career that works better. You know, like as you promote more women, guess what happens? You have more women. As you promote more people of color, guess what happens? You have more people of color. And it happens partially naturally because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, part of it's just people start seeing possibility where they didn't see it before. And they also start seeing solutions. Like I didn't know how to overcome this X issue. And then I saw that person overcome that issue. And so now I see it's a possibility and I am going to move forward. So for me, it generally is more about the conversation. You know, it's, I make it clear with the partners and the firms that I work with, you know, I want to see teams. I want to hear from people who are thinking in a variety of different ways about different matters that come from a variety of different experiences. At the end of the day, I work at a consumer products company. That means that our consumers make up, you know, every possible background across the world as possible. You know, as a company, we can't service our consumers unless we are thoughtful about what those consumers want, need, care about, you know, what the, what their cultural imperatives are. And I feel the same way as a lawyer representing this consumer product company. And so I feel the same way about my law firms. You know, I want you to bring the full view of kind of the world and the people that are in it when you're coming to me and presenting ideas and solutions and thought processes. And sometimes you can tell like with the firms that aren't bringing that full panoply of experience that, you know, the answers that you get for to difficult questions often aren't as creative, you know, aren't as thoughtful, aren't as well-rounded. And so I tend to take it from that perspective. I do think the law firms and, you know, the people that I work with hear what I'm saying and respond accordingly. You know, I have an extremely diverse team here at Kraft Heinz, and I'm very proud of that. And I always stress the importance of, you know, I'm a certain type of thinker with a certain type of background as a certain type of person, and I cannot give the best advice to my clients. I cannot play the chess game that is often the projects that we're working on unless I surround myself with people who are very different from who I am. And so you see that in my team. And I think that's one of the things that leads to the successes that we've had as a company. We're asking all of the guests for this particular series the same two questions at the end. Um, the first question is, and you've, you've already given a lot of really, I think, practical advice and guidance for anybody who might be listening. But if there is one thing that you could ask our listeners to do, and our listeners are from all over the world, one thing for them to do and to take away today that they can bring back to their own lives to help make the legal profession a more diverse, more inclusive place, what would that one thing be? Look behind you at the people that are coming up and no matter how different they may look, speak, sound, interact, you know, trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand where they're coming from and seeing the benefit of that difference and what that might mean for the actual results that you can deliver for your company or for your client. Great. And lastly, when we think about sort of achieving success and, and making the legal profession a truly diverse and inclusive place, you know, what does success look like to you? How would you define that? It looks like the legal profession, you know, being representative of the communities and the countries and places where we work and that being natural, like it not having to be, you know, 
forced, but, you know, to take, if, you know, take for granted that you're going to have a variety of different people apply for positions, that you're going to have a variety of people, you know, uh, uh, get those positions and then be successful and have varying degrees of success within those positions naturally. Fabulous. Yes. And my secret actual last question is, do you get to try new Kraft Heinz products before they come to the market? Do you have any advance? I do. <laughs> I do. And they're all, you know, and I'm always, you know, some of them are coming to the to market now. I think some of my, the ones that I've loved the most, we figured out the solution to how to microwave a grilled cheese uh, and still have it be like crispy and crunchy on the outside and nice and melted on the inside. We have tastings that we regularly give for employees, for executives, as we're trying to think, think about different products that we're trying to launch. And, you know, yes, those are some of my best days in the, in the office. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Rashida, thank you so much. It's been really interesting to talk to you and hear about your career and some of the advice you have um, for all of our listeners. So thank you again for the time that you've spent with us today. My pleasure. It's been uh, really enjoyed getting to know you, Janelle. Janelle here again to say thank you so much for listening along with us for this Twill Takeover. It's been my privilege to host this series and, and chat with all of the inspiring lawyers that we've had as guests for these last five episodes. I hope you've taken away some ideas to bring back to your own working lives or even your personal lives about things you can do uh, to make the legal profession a better place to work and to make the world a more equitable and inclusive place for all of us. Um, for me, one ex unexpected theme that has come out of this series is, is just the value of taking a risk in your career. Um, each of our guests, and this, this wasn't planned, but it seems that each of our guests came to a certain point in their career journeys where they, they really took a leap um, into the unknown. Uh, you have you know, both Susan and Florence who started their own farms, which are flourishing. Makalika, who switched from her successful career as an IP lawyer to then leading a nonprofit. Um, we spoke to Barry about the charity that he started that's now expanding into the US. And then finally, you know, Rashida, who was this very successful law firm partner, who then decided to try something new and, and become a general counsel. So I hope for each of you listening, uh, as you listen to our guests' stories, if if you come to a fork in the road like that in your career, or if there's something that you've been dreaming about that uh, you're not quite sure about if you should try it, um, that listening to, to our guest stories might inspire you to, to maybe take that riskier path and find those rewards at the end of it. So thank you again to all of you, our listeners. Thank you very much to our guests. And thank you to Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law uh, for making this series possible. Bye. The Hearing Twill Takeover, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com slash the hearing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.